Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thanks for joining us. And we are continuing our family Bible study in the Gospel of Matthew. And today what I would like to do is survey the forest, so to speak, of the Gospel of Matthew. It's a long book, 28 chapters, all kinds of verses about all types of different subjects, but it's very helpful before you dig into any book of the Bible if you can get a sense of the way it was put together and why. And in fact, uh, this is particularly for Hebrew authors uh, in the Old Testament and the Hebrew uh, writers of the New Testament, they wrote in Greek, but except for Matthew, Matthew probably originally wrote in Hebrew, the only gospel he did that, but they had a way of even structuring their literature to convey a message because the Hebrew language was very limited, and, and seminary students are very happy about that because it's hard enough with the limited vocabulary, but so they would do things uh, with their literature to try to convey a major point. And so that's what we're trying to do today, surveying the Gospel of Matthew. And, and what's Matthew about, Luke about, Revelation about, Isaiah about? <laughs> it's about Jesus, God the Father revealing himself through his son Jesus, the promised Redeemer. So uh, we're going to survey the forest in Matthew, and we want to learn the unique contribution that Matthew makes of what Jesus is all about, who he is. Now, I need to ask you a question. Did any of you like the uh, whodunit type of uh, detective shows? I must confess, I like those, particularly those that don't just give it away right off the bat, that they have to dig around, some rabbit trails don't lead anywhere, but all of a sudden they get a clue. And then they start piggybacking that clue, maybe have to skip another rabbit trail, but another clue, and then start putting it together, and then they have some solid evidence to make a case. So if you don't mind, that's what I would like to do to lead you. I could just tell you in 30 seconds uh, the unique contribution, the whole forest view of the Gospel of Matthew, not surveying the individual trees, but what's the big picture, but let's do some detective work together to try to find how the Gospel of Matthew is organized and why. So clue number one, I'm sorry, this is probably cheesy, but the biggest clue of all, right, in the detective shows of all detective shows and stories was the dog that didn't bark with Sherlock Holmes, right? So here's the dog that didn't bark in the Gospel of Matthew. And remember, I mentioned that this, this was a gospel written particularly for Jewish converts and Jews interested in converting to the Christian faith, and it was likely written in Hebrew initially and then translated into Greek. So this is the question, that this is the dog that didn't bark clue, so to speak. How come a gospel written for Jews, most likely in the Hebrew language, doesn't even mention Moses until the second half of the gospel. Why no bark 
until I think it's like chapter 17 out of 28 chapters that even mentions Moses. And anybody who knows anything about the Jewish faith, Moses is a really big deal. There are some very critical verses about Moses in his relationship to Jesus, and it starts with an important prophetic word that Moses gave back in the book of Deuteronomy, one of those five books that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy 18, 15. And it goes like this. The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Okay? So, basically, a faithful Jew was told, this was a key prophecy, Deuteronomy 18.15, to be looking out for a prophet like me, like, like Moses. And here you come to the book of all the books of the New Testament, and it doesn't mention Moses until you get to the last portion of the book. What gives? Why doesn't this dog bark about Moses? Okay. And just so you know that this is an important verse, St. Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 3 goes like this from St. Peter. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. That's St. Peter in Acts 3. This is St. Stephen's speech in Acts 7. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses, Moses, Moses. And yet Matthew doesn't talk about Moses, or, or does he? We got to follow up some more clues. All right, clue number two. What is Moses especially remembered for? And I guess, actually, I need to reconsider that clue, but um, you would think the Ten Commandments, of course. But we really remember Moses is when we're talking about the Bible— is that he's responsible for the law. In fact, the law is called what? Often the law of Moses. The Hebrew name for law is Torah. So you call the law the Torah. These are synonyms. Or you can call it the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch comes from just a Greek word, which means five books. Okay, five books. That's what it means in Greek. The law, Torah, Pentateuch. So that's what Moses was very specially remembered for. Okay, now this is clue number three. Behind this clue is the fact that the books of the Bible are divinely inspired. This is the word that God wanted to convey but the miracle is there's a certain synergy that God used, and when Moses or Mark or Luke or John sat down to write a gospel, this wasn't kind of a, a robotic uh, automatic handwriting or some computer printout. No, God used everything about that person to create what they were writing in their unique ways. And this is one of the things when you study the Bible, you'd want to try to get behind 
the author himself. And being a Christian, we realize that God has our days planned before there was yet any of them, the Bible says. And God knew what Matthew was going to do and how he was going to write before Matthew was even born. And so he allowed him to go through certain things in life. So let's think. What was Matthew's job (laughs) before he became a gospel writer? And, you know, if you want a, a proof of Christianity, here it is. Who in the world, in their half right mind, would choose a tax collector to become one of the dominant gospel writers to validate the Son of God having come to earth? Who in their right mind would do that? I would never do such a thing. And yet, here, this is what Jesus does. <laughs> this is kind of a proof to Christianity because. It's just not the way you would think the world should work when the Son of God comes and the gospel is this royal announcement, the Son of God has come, and then he picks a tax collector um, to do the job. Now, let's think about that, though. Years ago, we had a wonderful bookkeeper when our office was in Florida uh, who was the bookkeeper accountant for the Family Life Center. And one of the things I remember is that everybody knew that you couldn't touch her sharpened pencils and pens that were carefully arranged on her desk. And I said to the staff, I said, it's okay if there's hands off because that person likes her things in a certain position, a certain place. And that's just the job of an accountant or a bookkeeper is to keep things in an orderly fashion. You know, the right line, the right column, the right number in the right place, that's accounting, okay? That's who Matthew was as a job, okay? That's just a a clue. Now, we're building clues, okay? Now we come to clue number four, and this this is really the giveaway. What is distinctive in the Gospel of Matthew? What makes Matthew different than Mark, Luke, or John? And you read particularly the first three Gospels. They're called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic means just to, like your optics, you see together. They, they look very similar, but they do have variations. They're different. And what sets Matthew apart from the other Gospels? You, you really need to know this when you're going through or you are kind of miss how the whole gospel is fit together. Okay, clue, that's clue number four. And what is distinctive, and this is where I'm helping you out, but once I say this, the whole puzzle should just fit together, okay? What's distinctive in Matthew is that there are five teaching sections or called discourses. They're collections. Matthew has collected the teachings and sayings of Jesus into five different sections in the Gospel of Matthew. So, let's go back to clue number one. Is it really true, as I kind of halfway misled you, that the dog didn't bark? I mean, the dog didn't bark with saying the name Matthew, but if you're writing the first Gospel, okay, put into writing, probably in Hebrew for a Jewish audience, and they took 
the sayings of Jesus over a three-year period and broke them into five different teaching sections, what would that absolutely scream in the minds of a Jewish person? Well, this is the new Moses. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. In Greek, that means five books. And Matthew has organized, since he's a very organized bookkeeper accountant, he's collected these and present. So really the whole structure, the forest view of Matthew screams, Moses, Moses, Moses. And and this is the the new Moses, not the same Moses, not a really uh, different, but in, in the same role, how Moses was so instrumental in the formation of the nation Israel and getting the moral law. So now Jesus is the new Moses. And that's basically the Gospel of Matthew. Those five teaching sections is like the new Torah. This is why it's so important. This is why in a mass the Gospels are held high as the procession uh, into the sanctuary. Why? Because these are the sacred books. And this is what was prophesied for probably, I'm going to guess, around 1,600 years before Christ. There's going to be a prophet like me, Moses said, and when he comes, listen to him. Listen. And that's why we just don't want to kind of um, casually halfway listen during Mass while we hear Matthew read in, in year A of the cycle of gospel readings. This is why we want to bring the gospel home and read that passage again to our hearing so this is really digested, because Moses said, when this one comes, like me, the new Moses, listen to him with great care. And now you might say, well, okay, well, what about all that other teaching in Matthew? I mean, the formal teaching sections are five sections, but what about the in-between parts? Well, it says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, we're back to Stephen's speech. Stephen was almost like a, uh, a new covenant view of the Old Testament, like an Old Testament survey in one speech. And this is what St. Stephen said in Acts chapter 7 and verse 22. Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. That was Moses, okay? And then in Luke 24, it says this, verse 19. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people a direct equivalent of what Moses was, mighty in word and deed. And so what you have in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the forest view. And again, it's very easy to go through all the details and never have a clue that in, so to speak, in a subtle way, and yet a not so subtle way, particularly if you have a Hebrew background, Matthew is screaming at you by the structure, by the overall view of his gospel. You have those five teaching sections, like the Torah, the new Pentateuch, the new law. and But Jesus being the new Moses, 
is not only mighty in word, but also mighty in deed. So the miracles and the things that Jesus did, besides what Jesus said, are organized into various sections. So Matthew goes deed, then word, deed, then word, deed, then word. And that's how Matthew works. And so you want to get an idea of where you are when you hear a various reading. For instance, if you are in Mass and find that the Gospel reading is about the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes come from the first dozen or so verses from Matthew chapter 5. Well, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, is the first of Matthew's five teaching sections. Okay? So, you know that this is like the new Torah. This is like God um, communicating to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, which was an astounding revelation. But this is even more astounding in a sense because now you're on the mount and Jesus is teaching, but it's not God communicating to somebody on earth. God has come to earth and is teaching, and this is why this is the new and greater Moses, mighty in word and deed, okay? The second teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew, and by the way, I have a handout for you, so if you're driving, don't cause an accident here. I'll send you a handout. The second teaching section is in chapter 10 of Matthew, and that's the mission of the kingdom, the call and commissioning of the 12 disciples, critical, And then the third teaching section, one of my favorites, is chapter 13. And in chapter 13, you have seven parables, and they're about the kingdom of God and how it grows, its nature, its its composition, its struggles, and whatever else. The seven kingdom parables, that's Matthew chapter 13. And then the fourth teaching section is about life in the kingdom, life in the church, because the church is the expression of the kingdom of God in this age. That's chapter 18. And the teachings about true greatness, about the lost sheep, about forgiveness, really important stuff that makes the church survive, your family survive, your own personal life survive, what's true greatness, how, what's God's attitude towards lost sheep, and what's his teaching about forgiveness, okay? And then the fifth and final of the five teaching sections in Matthew. And remember, we're good detectives. We're not just going to go to sleep when we realize we hit another uh, discourse. Again, a discourse is a teaching section. Uh, The Olivet Discourse means that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. You can look over at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's not far away. And Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are the most extensive prophetic teachings in the entire New Testament, except for the book of Revelation itself. And so here you have a wealth of teaching about the end times. So now if um, you want to learn something about Matthew, and if you ever want to do any memory work, and particularly if you're homeschooling, have kids, boy, I mean, why not start to memorize this stuff? We have a handout for you if you, if you don't want to memorize it or if you want to use it to memorize. It's called 
handout number two of our family Bible study in the Gospel of Matthew, and it has the five teaching sections that I've just given you, the Sermon on the Mount, the Mission of the Twelve, the Seven Kingdom Parables, Life in the Kingdom Church, and then the Olivet Discourse on the End Times. And to get that, just send a request to askthehost at gmail.com, and we'll fire it out to you. And that's one of the things you want to learn, this basic structure. And you know, wonderful thing, just remember, see, you could get you could go read entirely through the Gospel of Matthew, and you could even use a commentary or something and really dig into the details. And I really wish you would, but you could do all that and not realize that Matthew is really <laughs> trying to give kind of like flash something to you. And to me, like, this is kind of clever and very good writing. He structured the whole gospel to get this across because, you know, the first verse of Matthew is Abraham and David. Well, there's only one person missing, and that's a dog that didn't bark. And yet he is barking very, very loud by the very structure of Matthew. And hopefully once you've heard what I've just described, you'll never forget this and and uh, figure out what's going on. I'm just going to share with you a couple of things. We're going to dig into this deeper, but uh, just some sampling of these different sections. From the first, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, incredibly important. It's, this is like the royal law, uh, the law of the kingdom. This is how things should be. Years ago, I read a very fine commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that was entitled something like, you know, something countercultural. And it was when the counterculture was going on, everybody was trying to find something with authenticity, and young people are still seeking that. Um, this commentary said, no, you know, being countercultural wasn't like going to Woodstock and being a hippie. Being countercultural really was going to Sermon on the Mount. And there's a huge amount of truth to that. But actually, upon reflection, I would turn that around. The Sermon on the Mount is not countercultural. The Sermon on the Mount is the essence of normality. If you want to be a normal human being, the Sermon on the Mount is the picture of it. Now, the trouble is, you and I are not normal human beings. We're in the process of God changing us back to being normal. Our world is distorted. It is so distorted, we don't even realize it because it's everywhere. It's pervasive. And the modern world with the media and the social media and all these influences, you know, we have mindsets that are so contrary to being a normal person. And if you want to look like what Adam and Eve were like before the fall, they were normal, okay? Uh, you say, well, how, how can you have that back again? Well, Jesus was normal. Uh, the Beatitudes, which are so challenging to us, the Sermon on the Mount, which is so challenging, wasn't challenging to Jesus because that's who he was. He was normal. We're the ones who have kind of, gone haywire, and the Sermon on the Mount is to try to bring us back. Uh, I'll save for 
next episode an example on how the very first beatitude just basically turns our whole modern world upside down. Um, It's be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. What is that? Uh, That sounds the opposite of everything I hear today. That uh, it's supposed to be my documents, my pictures, me, myself, I, everything's centered around the self. I declare my truth, uh, my identity, my gender, whatever. It's all self decreed. I'm the center of the universe. Trouble is, we're not having a world that's getting along with each other. We're not having marriages get along with each other because they have too many centers of the universe. Um, these are such practical things. I just want to mention the last. I'm going to jump from the first to the fifth section. We're going to go back and look at some of these. I'm going to give you a little peek into each one. But section five, the Olivet Discourse. Again, it just means that this was a teaching, a discourse of Jesus. Well, he was on the Mount of Olives, right adjacent to Jerusalem. Uh, if Matthew 24 and 25 are extensive teachings on the last days, the end times, yet this was considered a manual for those earliest converts to the Christian faith. And I don't know exactly what converts are instructed in today, but very often, Teachings for the end times, we're just saying, well, there's the four last things, boom, 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 boom. Four last things are simply an outline, uh, but an outline without the details filled in, like Matthew 24 and 25, regarded as essential teachings for new converts in the early church. And I find it very interesting as well. You see St. Paul setting off to the Gentile world, going around the Roman Empire. Well, probably one of the first of his epistles written were 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that also include extensive teaching on the end times to very, very newly converted pagans to Catholicism. I'm just saying perhaps there's a dynamic here, and of course this is what I'm trying to do with my companion broadcast in Luke 21, is that the end times teaching is part of the fundamental introductory teaching to the Christian faith. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 428 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.